Hi guys, you are listening to Insights produced by the UNSW Law Society, a podcast dedicated to bringing you an insight into law school, the legal profession and legal issues. I'd like to acknowledge the Gadigal people, the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is recorded, and to pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. This episode is sponsored by Criminal Defence Lawyers Australia, an award-winning, highly specialised team of criminal lawyers who work hard to ensure favourable outcomes for clients all across Australian courts. Today, we are speaking with the principal lawyer of the firm, Jimmy, who has represented some of the most high-profile and complex cases in Australian history and has distinguished himself as one of the top criminal lawyers in our country. Um, now, you probably know how this already runs. Um, for the viewers at home who don't know, um, we had the pleasure of hosting an episode last year with Jimmy, along with one of our own criminal law professors, Alex Steele. So I guess the first question I kind of wanted to throw at you is, what has changed from last year to this year in your personal life, professional life? Uh, what has changed? Well, we're uh, uh, stronger and bigger. Um, in terms of personal life, I've gotten older, a few more grey hairs on my beard. Um, um, but look, that's there's nothing more really that's changed other than that. Yeah, yeah everything's the same. Um, everything else is the same, I suppose. Yeah, so I guess another question is just like, what are some new challenges you'll say you've faced in, in the practice like the past year or this year? Um, Look, the biggest changes were really coming into and getting out of the COVID. I think we're kind of out of it now. Yeah. Um, and everything's kind of like back to normal. Yeah. Um, and the biggest challenges back then was really the technological um, changes everyone had to kind of get used to. Um, and now everyone's used to it. And some of the things have been um, maintained. For example... Um, during COVID because of the distancing rules, um, it, was, it was impossible to execute affidavits, witness executions of you know affidavits and sworn evidence and stuff like that. So that's something that's actually continued on. So now you can actually do remote witnessing of affidavits even till this day. And it makes that, that, that makes things much easier. So if anything, rather than challenges, I think things have improved. Um, and there's always room for improvement, but yeah. So I guess we can kind of dive into the nitty gritty part of criminal law. So can you explain what your firm does and how does the criminal law process operate? And um, just on top of that, what does like a day look like for you as well? Okay, so I'll try to answer the first part of that question. What do we do? What does Criminal Defence Lawyers Australia do? Mm -hmm. Look, we represent guide and advise uh, people who are charged with criminal offences or potentially will be charged with criminal offences. We protect their rights both outside of court and inside of court. Okay, so we make sure people's rights are protected regardless of what they did or alleged to have done. And that's that's the main thing we do and that's something that I think most people don't realise um, because realistically those rights that we're protecting is the same rights everybody shares. Um, 
that's essentially what we do. And what was the second the question, part of that? The second part of it was um, how the criminal law process operates in terms of that as well. Okay, so I mean, how the criminal pro- process operates. Mm. I guess we can break it down into three parts, okay? The first part will be the lead up to an arrest. Then it will be post arrest, right after arrest and before going to court and then going to court and thereafter. So just leading up to the arrest, um, that process or procedure is actually reflected in what's called the uh, Law Enforcement Powers and Responsibilities Act, also known as LEPRA. Um, And it's actually section 99. So section 991A and section 991B. And 991A basically requires the police officer to form what's called a reasonable suspicion without a warrant, that is, to arrest someone, they must have a reasonable suspicion the person has or is committing a crime. Um, And a reasonable suspicion is something that's less than a reasonable belief, but more than a mere possibility of that. Um, And look, the police officer has to obviously, you know, talk about his or her, um, the information in his or her mind, and the court needs to understand what the source of that information and the contents of that information is in order to be able to then determine for the court whether that affords a reasonable grounds for forming that suspicion. So that's 991A. The second part of that in order for the, the, the arrest to be lawful is section 991B, which requires that the arrest be considered reasonably necessary for one or more reasons outlined in that subsection. And that's an evaluative judgment that the police officer is actually required to do at the time of the arrest by considering alternatives to arrest and considering less drastic measures than arrest. Um, And in doing that, the officer has to also consider whether the arrest is proportionate to the perceived risk, okay, in order for that officer to believe that they need to arrest the person. And it's considered a measure of last resort, really, because it's taken someone's liberty away. So that process has to be demonstrated in evidence in court in order for that arrest to be considered lawful. If that arrest is, is, is unlawful, then any evidence obtained as a consequence of that can be kicked out under what's, uh, the sections 138, 138 of the Evidence Act. Um, so that's the arrest process leading up to it. There's one more critical aspect of that part is that there has to also be an intention to charge the, the, the suspect. So there has to be an intention to charge that person at the time of the arrest. So um, that's an, an additional aspect of it that a lot of people aren't really aware of. Um, so look, that's leading up to the arrest. Then there's the arrest, uh, uh, post-arrest process. And the post-arrest process is actually just about once, and it's the same legislation, LEPRA, after a police officer arrests the person, they're required to bring that arrested person to a, um, an authorised officer as soon as reasonably practicable um, to be dealt with according to law. Um, they're not allowed to detain you after that unless they comply with part nine in order to ask you questions and do further investigations. So as soon as you're arrested, they have to bring you before an authorised officer, which is a court, okay? and the court can decide whether you're given bail or not if you make a bail application. 
Um, so that's the process, basically. You have to, they have to do that. Um, and after, um, after doing that, um, sorry, what I'll do is I'll take it back a bit. After they arrest you, they're only allowed to detain you for purposes of questioning you or asking or making further investigations um, in certain circumstances. If, that is if they comply with what's called part nine of the lepra. And part nine requires that the police officer, as soon as, as, soon as the arrested person is brought before a, uh, brought, before a uh, brought into the custody of a police station or place of detention, the custody manager at the police station is then required to provide a caution and an outline of part nine rights to that detained arrested person at the police station or place of detention before they can start questioning the person. So that's another aspect that has to take place. They can't generally just start asking questions at the roadside or where they arrest them outside. They have to actually take them to the police station or a place of detention before they're allowed to ask them questions, but they have to give them a caution before they do that. That is, you have the right to remain silent. You don't have to do or say anything unless you wish to. Anything you do or say can be used against you. And that's really important to understand because everyone that's generally suspected of a, of a crime has a right to silence. And that can't be used against you if you exercise that right to not talk. So that's the arrest, post-arrest process. And then the, after that, you get charged. If you get charged, then, I mean, they don't have to charge you. They can let you go without a charge and they can continue, continue their investigations. But after you get charged, um, they then give you a, a, a court attendance notice. Um, and that uh, provides the details of when and where you need to attend court and the charge or charges. And then you have to go to court. And then the court process starts from there. That That's must great. have been very um, familiar yeah. for us because we just completed a course in um, criminal... The court pro process. Yeah, yeah. court oh, process yeah. last mm. term. So it was a great revision for yeah. us as well. Yeah. yeah. And I guess to jump off that, this was a kind of question that was really tossed around. But do you think, especially as a criminal lawyer, that lepra is enough to kind of keep these police powers in check? Do policemen typically abide by that? Or do you think they're very trigger-happy with their arrests, skip through the laws and take advantage of the fact that a lot of people don't know their rights completely. Well, look, some police officers will bypass it and others won't and they will comply with it. Um, and we see it many times where police officers don't comply with part nine leper requirements. And they're there for a very good reason. They're there to protect everyone's rights. So yeah, some police officers don't comply with it. And those that don't, as a result, obtain evidence that's incriminating to the accused person. Well, we can, as lawyers, make applications to get that excluded under section 138. There's other sections there as well um, to get things excluded, which is 137 of the Evidence Act, but mainly if it's evidence obtained improperly or obtained illegally, and illegally would be where you don't comply with part nine requirements, um, the evidence can be kicked out. And it's a public policy consideration when, you, when, that, when the courts consider whether to kick it out or not. Yeah. Which, which lawyers, as defence lawyers, we don't normally win those arguments. Mm. It's hard to win those arguments practically in court. That's mm. very interesting because in our responses for our like, court procedure um, like law um, course, yeah. we actually would use section 137 and section 138 a lot in our defences, being like, oh, the criminal, as a criminal um, defence lawyer, we'll use these sections, thinking that it's very applicable and very often used in actual court proceedings. Yeah, but it's very fundamentally very important to know mm -hmm. because 
Um, on the one hand, if the evidence isn't excluded, it in a way kind of encourages unlawful and proper conduct by the police. And that's a balancing act on one hand, and you don't want to encourage that kind of stuff. Um, because what we're doing is we're protecting fundamental rights. Um, and then you have to balance what's more important here. How important is this evidence and how serious are the allegations? They're all the subsections to 138 that you have to consider and balance. That's fair. Yeah. So I guess to piggyback off that, um, when you deal with high profile complex cases, as well as kind of in your practice in general, um, obviously the stakes are pretty high. And I guess oversight on your end could potentially lead to an innocent person being incarcerated or being charged with something that they didn't do. And I guess what I want to ask is how do you deal with that pressure or does it ever affect you when you work? The pressure of potentially a, 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 an innocent person could dealing be with child. yeah dealing with like high stakes I guess yeah look we we, we get used to it and we are used to it and um, you know I, I tend to think criminal lawyers in particular are a different breed we have pretty thick skin um, and you know you just get used to it the pressure the environment um, it's always nerve wracking when you do your first court appearance um, but if I could, on the same token if you care enough about what you're doing you're always going to feel nervous when you start out even after and I've been doing this for over 15 years even even now you know stakes are high I'm still going to feel nervous when I go into a courtroom just before I'm going to start but once you start something just kicks in and it's just you autopilot it's on but I feel nervous because I care that much about what I'm doing, um, you know. So that one will never go away, and that's very normal to feel. So I guess in order to answer your question, how do I deal with that situation? Well, my job is to do the best I can, and I prepare. If I prepare well, I consider all the issues in the in the case, and sometimes if I want to get another view, I'll speak to colleagues, I'll speak to barristers, I'll call them, I'll say, Matt, what do you think about this case? So that way I get some perspective on it. And then you know you're definitely on the right track. So that pressure starts to subside even more by the time you go to court. Because you know you're doing the right thing by your client. Um, and you're doing the right thing as a lawyer, as a legal practitioner, um, to make sure these rights, these what you're doing is their rights are protected. What your, your approach is the right approach. So that your client isn't disadvantaged in any way. So by doing your due diligence, yeah, it mitigates that um, that pressure environment. Definitely, no, that's yeah. fair. No, I agree. Yeah, like just to add on to that, I guess more in line with the other end of the spectrum and something that I am personally very curious about because um, especially as a law student who wants to go into, who is considering criminal law. So what if your client is guilty? How do you deal with the ethics side of um, the situation like that? Look, um, the solicitor's conduct rules are very important to be familiar with. And that guides you in how to deal with those situations. But for example, that's more relevant. The solicitor's conduct rules will be more relevant where your client has admitted guilt to you, but says to you, I want to plead not guilty. So defend the case. Now, because they've said that to you, you can't, they can't unsay it and you can't unhear it. So as a lawyer, ethically, the solicitor's conduct rules guide you on how to approach it. You can then run the case and you can still act for that client. Um, but you, what you can't do is you can't adduce evidence that's inconsistent with what your client said to you. You're, what you can do is 
um, put the prosecution to proof, cross-examine their witnesses, and and outline any inconsistencies or dis- or, or credit credibility issues, and then and then make a submission at the end of end of the case in your closing submissions to the magistrate or judge that you know the prosecution have failed to discharge their obligation to prove its case beyond reasonable doubt because they the prosecution's job is to pr- prove each element of the offense beyond reasonable doubt not the defense's job to prove anything um, generally so you know you run it that way you can't run a positive case and juice evidence whether it's through your client to give evidence to say i'm innocent in any way shape or form or whether it's through other forms of evidence to show that he's, he or she is innocent you're not allowed to do that then but you can run that kind of uh, that kind of an, what i call a negative case um, instead of a positive case um, that's one aspect of it the other type of client is where you suspect the person's guilty um, but you know the client hasn't made any admissions to you so you can still um, again my job and criminal law, defense lawyers' jobs, or criminal lawyers generally speaking, job is not to judge people. We don't judge people, so I put that to one side, and I and I'm pretty good at now, just just going back on track and saying, look, what is my job? What are the elements of the offense? Does the evidence that the prosecution have have provided me with meet those elements? And is it then? enough to be able to establish each element of the offence beyond reasonable doubt, not on the balance of probabilities or possibilities, beyond reasonable doubt. So that principle of the prosecution is required to prove its case beyond reasonable doubt is a fundamental principle of law right, that, that allows legal practitioners to run cases in those circumstances even where they suspect their client might be guilty. Um, but there's no evidence of, you know, there's no evidence. The client hasn't said that he's guilty or she is guilty. Um, so you allow the prosecution to prove its case beyond reasonable doubt. And, and my job is to um, um, test that evidence and, and, and test that evidence and give my client a fair go in court. Does that make sense? Yes. Fair, yeah. Yes. So you wouldn't really go out of your way to really ask your client, like, hey, like, are you guilty? <laughs> no, because yeah. then I'm being personal. Yeah. And then it's per- my, my job is professional. Yeah. And I guess that's the difference between a professional and one that's not a professional. Yeah. You know, a professional does, you know, they st- you stick to eth- your ethical rules um, and, and, you, and you stay on track on what your job is and what you're supposed to do. There's rights. Those rights need to be protected. So, you know, when you first started in this um, field then, like, was it kind of hard for you to find that balance between your kind of your personal conflict and also the professional side? Um, I think a lot of people, some, a lot of people probably would. Um, I didn't. Uh, maybe it was, it just came natural to me to be able to, I, I guess I've already prepared myself mentally by that stage. Um, I've, I've had an interest in criminal law. You know, you go through uni, you study and you learn what you learn. Um, and then you realise, yeah, look, um, you know, this is this is what we're supposed to do. This is how we do it. Um, I don't judge. I, no, I, I didn't have. I didn't find it too difficult. I didn't. Um, there are some cases that can get to you. Yeah, I mean, I've been doing this for over fifteen years now, being, being admitted as a lawyer, um, and you know, there's all there's always going to be difficult cases, um, and you've got to navigate through it. And that's where your colleagues help you you know you you know they understand because they're going through the same they've been there they've done that you know we i, I can talk to barristers i can talk to other uh, solicitor colleagues 
um, to, to get their advice. And they get it because they've gone, they've been there, they understand. Yeah. Definitely, yeah, that's definitely fair. And that's really important to have as well. Like a support network to kind of, yeah. You need a support network, yeah. No one's, um, you know, everyone is and can be vulnerable in different ways and you need to understand that. And I think, especially these days, um, um, that, 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 that message needs to be really put across to everyone. You know, that it's okay not to be okay sometimes when you're going, doing certain cases. Um, and that's actually called being a human. I think that can um, be applied to law students as well. Everyone, yeah. just humanity, generally speaking, yeah. And I guess in your profession where you kind of rely heavily on a support network to affirm your decisions and to help you develop your case, you obviously need to find people you trust to be in your corner. And I guess the question I kind of have is, did you meet those people through uni or did you pick that up through the profession and? Through the profession, yeah. Um, the long, yeah, you, you know, yeah, through the profession. Um, and, you get, and you get known, you know, the more you do what you do, the more people are made aware of you, you talk to them, they talk to you. Um, and over time, um, you know, you build that network up and it keeps growing. Um, quality over quantity though, so remember that. Actually, keep your circle small. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you don't need to have lots and lots. You have some good people around you um, that will support you and you support them. Um, you're winning. Definitely, yeah. That's a very good advice. Thank you. And I guess we'll take it a bit back a bit. And obviously, I understand confidentiality rules. Um, but I guess in your 15 years of practice, you would have come across some interesting cases. And I guess within the law and within what's legal, can you tell us about the most interesting cases you have kind of worked on? Oh, what's interesting these days for a criminal defense lawyer, he's been doing this for at least 15 years now. Um, so what's, not many things become very interesting anymore. <laughs> At the start, you're not as desensitized, I guess. So I'm a lot more desensitized to, to someone that's just started, for example, in the profession. So, for example, uh, doing a murder case where a, a father has stabbed his, you know, 20, 30-year-old son in the neck um, in a heated argument, um, to me now, it's, it's interesting, yeah, it's interesting doing a murder trial, doing all that kind of stuff, but, you know, to me it's like, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, because you've done it, you know, many times before, okay I go straight into looking at the legal principles the legal uh, the elements of the offence so my mind turns to all those things you know um, and so that distracts me from um, also going back to the other question you had got, being you know it affecting you personally as well so yeah you just get good at doing that then uh, over time so it, there's lots of interesting cases I mean that, that one was, is, was one um, murder um, the Anon drug matters. I don't know if you guys would have heard about that around the world. Um, so, you know, I've, I've actually just finished off one of the, the Anon drug um, sting cases. One of them, yeah, in Perth, in, in Western Australia. Could you um, give us a, a little bit of background? Nothing much, yes. but... Yeah, look, that's just, you know, there was a, there was a police informant basically developed a, an app um, that ended up being used by lots of uh, drug dealers around the world. And um, little did those 
drug offenders know that it's being monitored and um, by the by the police and you know not only the AFP but the FBI all over the world it's it's spread all over the world and and they've done a lot of made a lot of arrests as a result of it so and it's a big it's very big there's lots of people charged over it Um, and there's lots of legal arguments being run on it on 138 because there would have been I think well there is um, um, impropriety or or illegality conducted by the police in in obtaining that evidence Um, and the most recent legal argument on it uh, on a 138 kind of argument was lost and they're in my view they're all going to be generally lost Um, but people will try to run it so it's pretty interesting yeah so that's that's another one Um, but yeah look there's all types we do we I, i mean we do all types of criminal traffic matters from the drink driving through to the murders and everything in between yeah well we're on the topic of drugs so um i guess i'll just kind of talk more about that so a lot of people say australia's drug laws as they stand are dated and redundant so if you have the opportunity to define the future well you've already kind of touched up on this as well so future of drug regulations or maybe criminal law um, as a whole what would it look like um i think we're moving very 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 slowly towards decriminalization i think there's a long way to go um you know um, now they've got we've got um They've changed the law in respect to drug small small amounts of drug possession, where the police have a discretion to now instead of give you a court attendance notice, which results in you having to front court and face potential imprisonment sentences and criminal records, to to now um, be given a fine. You know, when you pay the fine, it does not result in a criminal record. Um, so, and there's also even before that, even before that. The police were given the discretion in respect to small amounts of cannabis possession to be given a caution called the cannabis cautioning scheme. Um, so that was before. Now we've moved to generally all uh, generally all drugs of small possessions um, they, that the police can give you a call, uh, sorry a fine instead, um, which was which doesn't result in going to court and being subject to potential criminal convictions, which affect the future of your career and everything. So that's another movement that's happened. And I think in, 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 um, in ACT, you know, you can grow a certain number. I think it's one or two or three. I can't remember off the top of my head. Um, plant pot plants um, legally, yeah. you know, in your backyard. So, um, and that's the capital, you know. So we're moving that towards decriminalization. And I think eventually we will get there with safeguards. But I think there's a long way to go. Definitely. Yeah. And I guess with decriminalization, especially pill testing and all that stuff, you mentioned the safeguards. I guess a lot of the stuff I read about on the internet, the counter argument is that it could promote a stronger drug culture and it could lead to more overdoses. It could lead to people. I have heard arguments where obviously people will do it in a safer environment. There's less likely to overdose, but then I guess there's two sides of the story. Um, Which side do you kind of align with? Well, I reckon the fact that it could it, it could result in more deaths it could do all this negative stuff these are coulds what we know at the moment is what is and it is causing deaths so the way i see it if it is causing deaths and there's potential for that to be mitigated in any way shape or form then why not give it a go why not give it a go um 
I mean, I think that's more important than those previous lockout laws that we've had in, in, in Sydney. You know, so I definitely think the way to go would be give it a go, see how it goes, at least trial it, because they don't have to stick to it once they trial it if it's not working. Then that then you have evidence of saying, well, look, we've tried it over a decent period of time, but it's not working, and these are the statistics and stats don't lie. And then there's a fair argument to say, no, that's not the way to do it. So I think I think you got to try. No, that's definitely fair. I yeah. Agree. I yeah. think right now there's a lot of potentials, a lot of hypotheticals, and I guess you don't know until you try. Yeah. But what we know is people are dying at the moment. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, I think it's always a topic um, in our like everyday night news as well. Like the news reporters are always talking about it. Um, but yeah, like just on top of like in, in terms of advice, like you giving advice to um, the viewers and also um, any potential like clients as well. So what do you wish more people knew about their rights um, in terms of like whether they're getting arrested or if they do get stopped by um, police, say at traffic or um, like traffic laws? Well, look, generally, I think I've I kind of outlined the, the law on, um, on the rest, yeah. the legalities around it. The police are not allowed to arrest you unless they satisfy those um, those conditions that I outlined at the start of this um, podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's something that people should be aware of. In fact, the police should be aware of it. Um, so, but really, I think the right to silence is fundamental, and it always needs to be brought back to attention. Right to silence is so fundamentally important that the police are trained. To, 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 to go through that arrest questioning process. They're trained for it. So they're in a position not only of power, because you've got a number of police officers surrounding you, but they're familiar with the, the criminal justice system and the process and how it works. As a per- and then on the other hand, the person subjected to that is often somebody that has never been through the criminal justice system. They're vulnerable. It could be a young um, for example, uh, a very young Aboriginal kid, right, that has never been before a court before, that's never been charged before, um, that person is actually considered a vulnerable person under the LEPRA legislation and regulations. Now, questioning that person in those circumstances would be unfair unless the LEPRA requirements and safeguards are complied with, which means they need to have a support person, someone there with them as well. So, yeah, um, those things are really important. Understanding the right to silence. Don't talk to police to answer any questions in relation to their investigation other than ex- outline your um, identification details of, you know, who you are if, if you're required to give that. Generally, you are if you're a suspect. Definitely. And I guess you mentioned young people and uh, you touched on this a lot. But to kind of refine that answer, I guess it's the case that Music festivals and parties, as you understand, are a big part of a typical university student experience and maybe even high school experience. And I guess, unfortunately, as a byproduct of that, a lot of students or young people get caught up in recreational drug culture. And I guess, do you have any advice for these people, these young men, women, to make sure they stay out of legal trouble if they get caught? Look, one thing um, one should be made aware of is drug detection dogs. Now, the drug dogs that the police use, if they indicate to, to an individual of, of, of drugs, 
that by itself actually isn't enough for the police to search you without a warrant. There has to be what's called a reasonable suspicion that you have drugs on you in order, order for a police officer to actually search you and find something on you. Just the fact alone of a drug dog making and indicating that you have drugs on you by itself is not enough, okay? Um, what happens is when a drug detection dog does that to individuals, they get nervous. They'll either run, which is another indication that the person might have drugs, and that could result in that reasonable suspicion category to allow a police officer to then say, oh, the drug detection dog made an indication, the, guy, the, per the, the, the person ran away, um, and this is a festival, I have a reasonable suspicion when I combine all those three factors together, and then as a result, if they find something, it's legally obtained. But if it's just a drug detection dog, they do a search on you just on that basis by itself. They find some prohibited substances on you. There's an argument to get it excluded because that wouldn't arguably amount to what's called a reasonable suspicion to be able to search you without a warrant. Well, so if I do freeze up, um, that's not kind of um, a reasonable suspicion to really... Um... No. I will, uh, no, no. And again, reasonable minds differ in court. But freezing up, a very simple explanation of freezing up would be it's a very intimidating uh, to be approached by uh, a police officer or a bunch of police officers, let alone a, a police dog. I mean, for me, like, I'm very scared of dogs. So if any dog do come close to me, I would freeze up and I'll get really scared. So I mean, they could use that as, as, a, as a basis in their mind. Um, you know, and then, and then the drug detection dog by itself indicating it. Um, I don't think that's going to be enough. Yeah. Um, reasonable suspicion, the more you talk about it, it seems to be a very subjective thing. And I seem to think music festival running away, it depends on a lot of factors. And I guess, is the strength of a reasonable suspicion argument in court contingent on how well a lawyer can construct it? Or is it a pretty objective thing? No, it's both. Subjective and objective. So, number one, it does depend on how the lawyer cross-examines the police officer. Um, that's advocacy. Um, and that is important. So the law requires, um, in order for there to be a reasonable suspicion, you need to adduce evidence from the police officer as to what, his, what was in his or her mind in terms of what was the source of the information that, they, that caused them to have the reasonable suspicion and the contents of that information. The source of the information is also very important to know whether that whether, whether that affords reasonable grounds to make that suspicion. Because if it's a really dodgy source, that will be relevant to a court saying, well, I don't think that's reasonable to have formed that suspicion, right? So the source of the information is important and the contents of that information is important. So the, that's subjective in the police officer's mind, the, the source of the information and the contents, but then that needs to be adduced in evidence in court. And then the court will then assess whether that, af af that affords reasonable grounds, which is objective. The court makes that objective um, determination, reasonable grounds to form that suspicion. So it's subjective and it's, and it's objective. Um, and you need to, yeah, adduce this subjective evidence and then allow the court to make that objective assessment on it. From memory, I do recall that um, there's no clear definition of what reasonableness is. Like it is up to the court's um, discretion for their own interpretation as well. If I'm correct. Well, uh, yes and no. Um, it's it's I mean, you, you guys would have 
would be familiar with Rondo's case. Rondo's case is the leading authority on what is what amounts to reasonable yeah. suspicion. So a reasonable suspicion is something that's more than a mere possibility, but less than a reasonable belief. Okay, and again, yeah, it is uh, it is one of those things where the source of the information and the contents of the information in the police officer's mind needs to be brought out in evidence by asking the right questions, and then. Um, make submissions or the court will then be left to determine whether that affo- that affords reasonable grounds to have formed that suspicion. Yeah. So it's both it's subjective, objective and um, yeah, that's the general process and Rondo's case is the leading authority on what amounts to reasonable suspicion. And you're right, it's, it's, it's one of those, you know, like it's, it's reasonable minds differ. Yeah, I remember just reading a lot of discussions on that, like what what kind of is a reasonable suspicion and what constitutes as a reasonable suspicion. And I do remember the lecturer mentioning how, oh, yeah, like it is kind of hard. And that's why the Australian um, legal system has never really tackled, um, looked more into what the definition is. Yeah, Yeah. Hmm. I think this is a great revision (laughs) for for second years and third years when they're studying um, criminal law and CP. Well, you should do a podcast on uh, on, for for law students that are uh, preparing for exams. Then no, yeah, yeah, honestly, if I've listened to this podcast Hmm. before my final exam, we should we should have done this earlier. Imagine imagine how many views we would have got. One term, like one. Maybe maybe we could beat maybe we could beat Kirby's podcast. (laughs) And um, you mentioned kind of putting police officers on trial and I guess one of the biggest things they emphasize especially in law school and I'm not sure if it's the same in practice is I guess harmony between the legislature the people who practice law and as well as the executives so the police that hold the people into account and a lot of the articles and a lot of the written materials on that are from quite a long time ago and I was wondering if you still think that's the case do you think that you kind of are able to effectively utilize legislation and work with police officers or do you think as time goes on, there's more tension. In sense of like the rule of law, and I guess you mentioned, or they mentioned the rule of law a lot in law school, how the legislature, the legislature, sorry, should empower the people who practice law to hold the executives to account, to hold the people, police to account. Yeah. And I guess, do you still think that's the case? Do you still think you work with police and as well as courts effectively? Well, look, we're, we're officers, as, as, as legal practitioners, we're officers of the court. We're there to assist the court, um, and the the on the other hand, the DPP, solicitors, legal practitioners, barristers, we're all there to assist the court, um, and the court, you know, makes sure uh, that the legal requirements are satisfied and, and all that kind of stuff. So sometimes you do get overzealous um, police prosecutors um, that kind of are more personally invested into prosecuting um, and and they tend to forget that. And on the other hand, you sometimes also get defense lawyers that are over, you know, a bit more personal, personally invested into it as well. But, you know, you need to always remember what your fundamental role actually is, which is, which is, which is that, is, is um, make sure that the, the, the law is upheld, the rights are protected and that's what everyone is supposed to work towards and work together as. But that practically doesn't always happen. Actually, normally it doesn't happen. Yeah, and I guess the reason why I asked that is that we had to observe a couple of Supreme Court cases yeah. last term. And one of them I watched was 
it was an assault trial, I think, or battery, and the Crown solicitor or the no, the DPP barrister was very, I guess, aggressive from the get go and yeah. was attacking the witness on stand, attacking the wife, and kind of trying to secure a guilty conviction, I guess. And as I watched that, I kind of realized this isn't what the law is meant to be. This isn't about protecting an individual's right by the government. It's about securing a guilty charge. It gets and guess, competitive. It gets competitive, it yeah. Does. It does, it does. And some people are naturally just inherently competitive by nature and personality. Um, and that's why, I, in my view, a professional, a, a true professional, will, will be reminded of that and they'll stick to what they're supposed to actually do rather than what their personal goals are. And it gets hard, you're right. I mean, people that are competitive, I mean, I'm, 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 I'm competitive, but I think I'm competitive in a healthy way. And, um, and, and I do remind myself what my role is. Um, and that comes also from experience and having the right people around you and learning the right way from the start. The fundamentals is very important that we should never forget. Even after 15 years of doing this, I always have to make sure and remind myself, remember the fundamentals. Yeah. yeah, I think at the same time, it also gets very intimidating for the witness sitting in the witness stand as well, because, you know, if um, the defense lawyer or even um, the prosecutor really just bombards you with a bunch of questions, um, yeah. you, it really gets intimidating and you just kind of lo- lose your chain of thought and you don't know what to say. Well, there's the, the Evidence Act is there to actually protect people from being um, um, spoken to in very rude ways. Yeah. Um, and and that can be objected on as well, like with oppressive conduct and you know shouting at witnesses. You object to it. They're not not, not allowed to do that. Yeah, and with the kind of unpredictability of the court and your inability to control what a witness says in front of the stand, is that why your firm kind of focuses on getting cases dropped early or charges dropped early, or is it more of a cost-saving thing? It's it's a lot to do with um, well, if a charge should be dropped, why put your client through the stresses and the legal cost of going through that. You know, it's not good in every perspective. It's not good for that human being that you're trying to help. Because remember, our job is to help people at the end of the day. Um, that's, that's, what I, what, that's what I do. I enjoy what I do. I'm passionate with what I do. And my job is to help people. I'm not truly helping someone here then, you know. It's, it's for the wrong reasons. And you can't be successful in anything if you're in it for the wrong reasons. If you're in it for the right reasons, um, you know, your reputation will precede, precede you um, and you start getting good results for people that, you know, for example, if charges should be dropped for good reasons and you get them dropped for good reasons, um, that person, individual's life is affected in a very positive way and they may have dependents, families who are also affected in very positive ways. So you make a big difference in people's lives. And remembering that is extremely important. Um, and it's also, it feels good, you know? It also gives you a very good reputation over the long term, you know? And again, you know, um, you, you, know you, you gain success over time if you do things the right way. So it's saving costs for clients and it's also saving a lot of the stresses that they don't, shouldn't have to go through. Because some police officers will do um, um, get evidence in illegal ways or improper ways that they shouldn't, um, and you know some evidence should be excluded, and therefore the charges should not have been there in the first place for one reason or another. So yes, 
And I guess finally to wrap it up, um, we asked you this last year, so we'll see how this changes. But do you have any key advice or what is one key thing you kind of want to impart to students as they navigate law school? I'm going to be writing notes. <laughs> oh, it's really simple. You don't even have to write it. Take, take care of yourself. Just take care of your health. You know, and when you take care of your health, that includes mental and physical you know, exercise, do something outside of studies and work um, it's, is, is just as important as doing what you enjoy doing, which is law or whatever it may be. It doesn't matter. But take care of yourself. If you exercise, you take care of yourself physically and mentally automatically. That allows you to sustain what you're doing. And that's as simple as it gets. So again, you don't need to take notes for that. Mm-hmm. If, if you yeah. do that and you stay consistent, you'll be able to sustain what you do at a high level of what you expect you want to do it at and over time magic happens i think you're correct you're, you're definitely right i feel like a lot of us experience like seasonal burnouts especially during like when it's the final season which obviously i think all of us are going through the same thing we're catching up on readings we are um or starting them <laughs> if you if you're like aiden you'll be starting them <laughs> so yeah like i think all of us because of that stress, we kind of neglect our mental health or our physical health. Plan, plan ahead. So if you plan ahead, like you know an exam's gonna be coming in a few months time, um, sit down and approach it in a sensible way. Like, right, there's all these topics that I need to cover. I've got X period of months remaining before I have to sit an exam or do something for it. And have a plan. First couple of weeks, I'll go through this topic, next this topic, and break it up into smaller parts. So if you have big projects, break them up into smaller projects. And then what you'll find is over time, you'll achieve a lot more than what you thought at that initial time you could achieve. You achieve a lot. And imagine how much you can do over a year then, over two years or over entire, like, you know, 15 years. Um, you're capable of a lot more than what you actually think, but, you, but only if you actually, you know, apply it. Because a lot of people generally just get lazy. They can't be bothered. Um, a lot of distractions are around us, especially when you're students at, at, at university. There's lots of distractions. You know, everyone wants to go out and party. I get that. Um, and you so you should. Um, but if you do that and also approach it in a sensible way and plan it and exercise, you're doing everything the right way. You're ahead of the game. You know, in terms of like planning, and especially um, in criminal law, because I find that um, when I was studying criminal law and CPEP, um, it was really hard to kind of make like a nice, neat flow chart because there's so many things to consider, so many things to remember. So I think for us, it's our first term doing um, back in in-person exams where it's only like two hours because in the past we've had like four hour window um, and also like 24 hours. So um, what would what did you do that you found very useful in university um, when you were kind of studying for your finals? Oh, <clears throat> to be honest with you, I didn't do it the way I should be doing it. <laughs> so I, I would often I'd cram, to be honest with you. I'm not perfect. Aiden's like, high five. <laughs> no, that's all right. And that's like, like I said, it's okay. Like, um, you, you know, in life, you're not always going to have it your way when you want it your way. But the fundamental thing you need to remember is as long as you're learning on the way. So there's a lot of things I wish I did back in uni as well. I wish I'd maybe taken a break or or a six month gap gap year. Um, You know, and that's okay. You make mistakes, but you learn from them. Um, It's not, you haven't failed until you've actually given up. You know, if you fail, that means you must have learned something along the way. 
So that's a gain. That's not a failure. That's like, all right, cool. I'm going to do it again. I learned so much now. I'm going to. I'm going to. I have all that knowledge now. I'm going to do it again. I'm going to do it like you know. So you know, there's what I do now. What I've learned now. I've learned from making mistakes, right? And and it's got to where I am because I remember my mistakes and I'm like, cool. I've learned from them. And over time, you learn and you learn and you learn and you learn all these really important things. Um, it's pretty valuable. Let's just put it that way. That's very interesting. No, that's really great yeah, advice. That's, yeah, because I think for me, especially, like I am very scared of failure. And I know a lot of people has always said like, you know, like if you fail, you just learn from that, right? But I guess, especially as a law student, like you really have that, um, you want to do your best. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah no, I, I, same with me. I've, I've always feared failure, always feared it. And I still do. But you get more confident with yourself if you apply yourself, if you try, when you try and you fail at anything you do, the, the, the courage to be able to keep going is something that not everybody has, but I think everybody can have. But if you do it, that just makes you more resilient and stronger. And the fear starts to, it doesn't go away completely, but it starts to subside at least, right? And you get better and better and better and better and better. And that leads to success. Anyone that's anything in life, anyone that's any, anyone that's done anything in life, would have gone through so many failures in one form or another. You know, it doesn't have to be just failing in subject; could be failing in other aspects. Um, but you know, you learn from it. So plan it, take care of yourself, and learn from mistakes. Great advice. That's, yeah. that's really good advice. Yeah. yeah, I guess I'll just wrap it up. So. Um, Jimmy, thank you so much for your time today. Both Aiden and I have learned a lot from you and um, definitely a great revision class for me in particular as well. So hearing your unique take on these complex issues surrounding this field was very refreshing and I'm sure that the listeners have found this very insightful as well. Um, So thank you for listening to Insights by the UNSW Law Society. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss out on any further episodes.